Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let me read scripture before you sit down, please. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We studied this last week. We're going to go to it again now. And then this evening, we're going to return to it. Uh, John Calvin was the great leader of the Swiss Reformation in Geneva. If you were here, you heard about him, Stephen's teaching during the Sunday school hour. Again, I commend that class to you. It's fascinating. I learn wonderful things every time I go. And... John Calvin would preach sometimes four or five, six times a week, and uh, he preached, I don't know, somewhere between three and five sermons on this passage that we're studying, and specifically three sermons on this verse. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteous. And so come back tonight so that we can continue as we think about what it means to love Bloomington. This is a wonderful uh, statement of scripture for us if we don't know what to say to our neighbors and our roommates. And I will speak on that tonight and it will basically be saying what Calvin said. Now, here we are again in this passage, and what we see is that the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision, telling him Don't be afraid, a wonderful thing that God says to us, because we are weak, we are um, timid, we don't have the faith we should, and there is so much in this world to make us afraid. Increasingly, what we're afraid of is getting the dislike button on Facebook. And we have a tendency to laugh at ourselves, suffering and feeling persecuted in America today, um thinking of people that live in Muslim lands or in communist countries where there really is persecution. And so we tend to be dismissive about what we suffer, thinking it's not much. But you know, in some ways, sometimes it's nice to just feel it. Because sometimes the, the boogeyman in our brain is, is so large that you wish that they just get on with it and, and kill us. Now, I don't mean to make light of anybody who dies for Christ, and I certainly don't mean to say that I wish that uh, uh, 
that President McRobbie would just go ahead and take, take Alex out. But psychological persecution or the persecution of you being labeled uh, an untouchable, an unmentionable, a leper, a moral leper in a tolerant society actually can be very difficult to suffer. And so when we come to uh, passages of Scripture that command us not to be afraid, we should not just throw them off and, or think that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of cancer, we shouldn't be afraid of bankruptcy, or we shouldn't be afraid of losing our job. But there is an awful lot of our lives today that is spent fearing. I got a, an email, a short email from a guy that publishes a magazine this last week asking me whether I was concerned about our children and grandchildren being persecuted, and if so, what were my thoughts about it? And so really, everybody's thinking today about the coming persecution. And God's command is, do not be afraid. God's command has not changed Always, we have a choice in life. And you know what that choice is? I say this to you over and over again. You will be afraid, but you will fear only in one direction. You're never going to escape fear in your life. You will never escape fear in your life. Either you will fear God and be confident in the face of all of life and anybody that comes to you, or you will fear everything else, but you can't fear both the world and God. You're going to face one direction or the other. And so really your choice in life, you know, uh, was it Roosevelt or that's, yeah, it was Roosevelt. He, he said, the only thing we have to be afraid of is fear itself. And if I were at home, I'd have one thing to call that statement, but here in church, I'll call it something a little different. What a stupid statement. <laughs> I mean, it's so, so, so completely ignorant that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. No, we fear God, and then we are what? The man that fears God is what? He's fearless. He's fearless. And so God starts by saying to Abram, don't be afraid, and then... He gives him two reasons. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. Now, Abram has been promised that his descendants will be more than the dust of the earth. He's been promised that God is going to bless all nations through himself. And so if God says, don't be afraid, I'm a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great, Abram is not a prophylactic modernist. And he's not thinking, well, let's see now, maybe we could like have an artificial womb, and maybe if, even if Sarah and I don't have children, maybe I could like adopt a whole bunch. You know, Abram is a normal man, and he says, how can I be a blessing to the whole earth? How can I have descendants more than the dust of the ground? How can you give me very great reward when you haven't given me the very first reward that any normal man wants, which is a child. Mary Lee has been over in Cincinnati at, our, at the Cincinnati church plant, and what, two in the last week, and another one, I think this coming week, am I right about that? Huh? Two more coming in this coming week? Oh yeah, twins, that's right. 
twins are coming. Yes. Yep. And so Abram's hearing, don't be afraid. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram says, oh Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is a stranger. Nobody related to me. In other words, God, how can you give me very great rewards when you have not given me a child? And so how does God respond? Well, God takes him outside and says, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, God said to Abram, so shall your descendants be. Now that's the background for the verse we're looking at today, which is, then he, referring to Abram, believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Then he, Abram, believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. So here we have the statement that is the the foundation upon which an awful lot of the New Testament is a riff on. It's like embroidery. It, it opens this up. Hebrews, Romans, we read the chapter 3 of Galatians today. And all of these places go on and on and on about this verse. And we see that this verse is an indication that Abram believed God that he trusted God, that he put his faith in God. Now, what did he believe? Well, if we go to Hebrews 11, we read a little bit more about this statement. In verse 8, we read, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So this is Abraham's faith, that he leaves where he's living, he doesn't know where he's going, but he obeys God. He believes God, and he leaves. Verse 9, it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Remember that uh, science fiction novel, Stranger in a Strange Land? Any of you remember that? And that's titled from this text in the King James. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so the uh, sojourning nation, nature of his life was also his faith. And then, verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You know, what do we think of Sarah? I think the central image in our minds about Sarah is what? Laughter. Laughter. I mean, you know, she laughs. Oh, yeah, I'm going to have a baby, you know. And yet what it says here in Hebrews is that she had faith. And so her faith was weak. You know, you could make a case from Abram asking God, well, where are my descendants being faithlessness, right? Our faith is always weak. And so here it says that Sarah herself had faith. Therefore, verse 12, there was born even of one man, and then one of my favorite phrases of scripture, and him as good as dead. 
So it was born of a man, one man, and him as good as dead at that. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Abram had faith in God. He believed in God and what he promised. And so it says, verse 6, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, where did that statement come from? He reckoned it to him as righteousness. It makes no sense. Now, I know it makes sense because you're so used to hearing it that it makes sense because you've heard it a lot. But we're talking about God protecting him, God being a shield. We're talking about God giving him a great reward. He says, yeah, but I don't have any children. That's the reward I want. He doesn't actually say that last thing. And then it says that he believed the Lord. The Lord promised him he'd have children. And then he believed the Lord. And then he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is so strange that all over Scripture, you have popping up all through Scripture these statements about righteousness and sin and forgiveness. God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And immediately our brain should go, well, why did Abram need righteousness? Abram's the most righteous man that ever lived. There's no other man who has ever been given the command by God to sacrifice his son, who is by faith taken that son and put that son on an altar and had the wood ready and the fire ready and the knife ready. Abram got up and left. Abram, how could Abram need righteousness? We have similar statements in the Gospels where miracles are done by our Lord Jesus And yet the miracles are relegated to a subordinate status to the forgiveness. You're expecting, you know, the center of the story to be that the blind are made able to see, that, you know, the lame get up and dance, that the dead are raised from the dead, that the demons are cast out. And yet the center of the story actually doesn't have to do with their healing. Physical healing. So, for instance, in Luke 5, we read, some men were carrying on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him, meaning Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. And it says, verse 20, Luke 5, seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And this strikes us like this statement, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Your sins are forgiven. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. It just doesn't make any sense. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you, or... To say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Remember what I said. It's like, it's subordinate. It's less important than the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, okay, you don't believe I can forgive sins. All right, get up and walk. 
Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. We have a similar thing with the woman that washed Jesus' feet with her tears in her hair. Listen to this, excuse me, Luke 7. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, you remember Simon is the Pharisee, the religious, the very conservative, orthodox, religious leader who Jesus is dining with in Simon's home. And Simon disapproves of this woman loving Jesus so tenderly. And so turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love that statement. You know, we are so conceited. And we think finally we've arrived at a day when we see women. Finally, culture has progressed to the point that you and I see women. But of course, we don't. What we see is women that demand that we see them. But what it's done is it's relegated the women who are mothers and wives to such a low status that nobody sees them anymore. Nobody. And so a very profound statement here where Jesus says what? Do you see this woman? I entered your house... You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And then verse 47 says this. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. You know, who was talking about sins? Who was talking about sins? Do you think anybody there wanted to talk about sins? You think Simon asked Jesus in, so, Jesus, I'd like you to come to my house for dinner so we can talk about sin. You know, you invite somebody for Thanksgiving, international student. Come to my house and we'll eat turkey and stuffing and talk about sin. And Jesus dignifies this woman. Jesus commends this woman. Jesus blesses this woman. Jesus lifts this woman up into a place where you and I, 2,000 years later, honor her by saying what? She loves much because she's been forgiven much. And then he says, woman, your many sins are forgiven you. And that's dignity. It's not the dignity the world gives. It's not the dignity feminism gives you. It's not the dignity that democracy gives you. It's not the dignity that a degree gives you. But then ask yourself, what dignity do you want? What do you want? Then he said to her, verse 48, your sins have been forgiven. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, well, who is this man who even forgives sins? And then verse 50, he said to the woman, what? Your faith has saved you. 
go in peace. Her faith. You know that the great theme of God's book, the Bible, is faith. And not faith in the earth, and not faith in the sun. And certainly not faith in Mars. Have you noticed how the whole scientific world now has faith in Mars? It has water, and it may have had life. It may going to get life. It may have life. And if not, Elon Musk is going to go there and mine it. And we're going to have all the natural resources we want because we're going to be space explorers. And, and so the whole civilized world is now having faith in space. It's a subtext of all the giggling excitement. Over the exploration of... We're going to send a man to Mars. This is how it's going to happen. Nobody lives without faith. Everybody lives by faith. The difference is what their faith is in. And the great theme of God's book, the Bible, is faith. But not faith in the earth or the sun or Mars or science or logic or Buddha or money or our husband or our children... And certainly not faith in ourselves, in our strength or wealth or intellect or righteousness. But faith in God. The great theme of God's book, the Bible, is faith in God. I'll speak about this more tonight. But the whole purpose of the Bible is to completely destroy our faith in ourselves. We read in Galatians, the whole purpose of the law is to destroy our faith in ourselves. We need faith in God because when we view ourselves accurately according to the diagnosis of Scripture and the Holy Spirit, we see that we are foolish and sinful, but I'm going to put modifiers on that. We are insanely foolish. And we are wickedly sinful. I was reading an uh, introductory chapter to a thesis this last couple weeks ago. Mary Lee was reading it. That's what Mary Lee and I do when we're traveling in a car. She reads me a chapter from... A doctoral thesis. And this thesis was about uh, three artists, one of whom was Flannery O'Connor. Well, how many of you have read anything by Flannery O'Connor? Flannery O'Connor is the original Twisted Sister. Okay? Her characters are just plain weird. Why? Well, because Flannery O'Connor was a believer in the doctrine of depravity or original sin. And so every time you read Flannery O'Connor, you run into somebody who actually makes a lot of sense. If you're a Christian, you believe in the doctrine of original sin. And it's obvious from reading Flannery O'Connor's stories that she believes the word of God. And the Bible, from beginning to end, starting with the fall of Adam, to the very end where it tells us who will be cast out of heaven, is an account of the 
the depravity of man. You know, we like to think it's the time of Noah or Sodom and Gomorrah. But no, you read history, you, you read Gibbon's The Decline of the Roman Empire. And you know what it's going to write about America. We know what the history of America is going to be. And Scripture's the original. Scripture's the original account of the depravity of man and of the hopelessness of any faith in man. The man that has faith in man or in himself is a fool. And so Scripture's story from beginning to end is faith in God. And it's because we can't have faith in ourselves because we are insanely foolish and wickedly sinful. We are not able to think God's thoughts. We are not able to do God's deeds because our wisdom is foolishness to God and our righteousness is filthy, bloody rags to God. We must have faith in God. And he or she who has faith in God is forgiven, is reckoned to be righteous. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now stop and think whether this makes sense to the natural man. Does the normal IU football fan, the man who lives next door to you or sits in the pew of the church with you right now, right now, does that man think of himself as dead in his trespasses and sins? That woman. Does he or she see himself to be a slave of Satan without hope in this world or the next? Does he mourn and grieve over his own wicked deeds? Does he offer sacrifices for the possible or the actual wicked deeds of his children? If you were to speak to him of his wickedness, telling him he cannot stand before the holy God without being consumed by God's wrath, would he nod his head and thank you for reminding him of it? Or would he ask you if you had been reading Edward's Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Maybe better, if you spoke to your neighbor about your own wickedness, saying you yourself are not able to stand before the holy God, without being consumed by his wrath, would your neighbor, your office mate, your barber, your hairstylist, your speedway cashier, your BMV desk person, your policeman, your policewoman, your teacher, your prof, your department chairman, your co-author, your governor, would your fellow church member agree with you? In other words, who needs forgiveness of sins? I don't need forgiveness of sins. You need forgiveness of sins? Who feels their need for forgiveness of sins? Who loves much because they've been forgiven much? You know, I think about this all the time when we're worshiping. I look at you as you worship. And it really is amazing how synchronous your body and your soul are. Ever thought about that? The guy that gets here late is sloppy about his soul. 
Anybody want to agree with that? Huh? Huh? Is, is being late to the worship of the triune God sloppy? And does it go with spiritual condition? Well, you're, you know you're going to tell me that the people in this church who are never late for worship are not sloppy spiritually, right? So there's something about our bodies in worship that goes together with our souls, right? The condition of our souls, right? And so when they're singing that I may live in the house of the Lord with joy, there are some people you look at here and you know they won't be in heaven. Why? Well, because it's obvious that it's not, you know, it's not stroking them where they itch. There's no joy, there's no responsiveness. You say, well, it doesn't mean that they're not Christians. They just probably have never had sermons on the doctrine of, of, of the last things in heaven. I say, okay, that doesn't mean anything. You're right. So then you look at the prayer of confession. And you watch as they read to us the scriptures upon which the prayer of confession is prayed. And you look for some indication of responsiveness, Right? Or there's the whole triumphant host gives thanks to God on hail. Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they forever cry. Hail Abram's God and mine. I join the heavenly lays. All praise and majesty be thine in endless praise. The whole triumphant host gives thanks to God on high. Hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they ever cry. Could somebody turn that thing off? It is driving me bonkers. Would you turn that off, please? There's a noise up here, and I keep expecting a train to come knock me down. Um, I want you to think about this. Thank you, Philip. I want you to think about this woman and how Simon the Pharisee would have despised this woman for making such a spectacle of herself. Do you understand? And here in the Reformed Church, in the Presbyterian Church, we have gotten to the point where we think the most spiritual man is the man that makes the least claim publicly about his heart. The more you rise in spirituality, the more suppressed your body and your face are. So that it's gotten to the point where the most pious man in Reformed Presbyterian circles today is the man that has the least affect. And, and, and they've, they've copied this in Assembly Hall. So that in Assembly Hall, everybody knows that the greatest fan of IU basketball is the man who has perfected his fandom to such a degree that there is not visible to you in any way his commitment to the team or to it winning. He sits in his seat. He's rigid. 
He never makes any noise, and his face is deadpan. And he is a paragon of fandom. I defy you to show me any place in life, any place in life, where we judge the commitment to Jesus Christ visibly the way we judge it in the church, in the Reformed world. And so today... We look at Jesus welcoming these friends of the paralytic, and it says, seeing their faith, he said. And then we see this woman, and Jesus says, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And as we read about the forgiveness of sins, we jump over the words, because they they mean nothing to us. We read them liltingly, lightly, superficially, unfeelingly, dispassionately. We have passion for gluten-free bread. I'm passionate about my gluten-free bread, my gluten-free beer. And we have absolutely no passion for Jesus and for forgiveness of sins and for worship. We read it flippantly. Yes, yes, our sins are forgiven. Yes, yes, Abram believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Yes, yes, forgiveness of sins. Yes, yes, reckoned righteousness. Does your heart beat more quickly when you hear of reckoned righteousness and forgiven sins? Do you find that your pulse rate increases? When publicly, in the hearing of everyone present, the assurance of pardon is read. Heaven is sung of. Here's our problem. We don't see our desperate condition due to our desperate wickedness. We do not understand God's holiness and justice, and therefore we do not understand our own depravity and bondage and the hopelessness of our condition. And we read this, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And it just goes right over us. Because we don't really have a desire for righteousness. Why? Well, it's because we think we have it. We think we're pretty good. You know? Well, compare me to a... To a you know, a blatant adulterer. Compare me to a man that kills babies for a living at the abortuary. Compare me to the man that says there is no God. And I look pretty good. We think God grades on a curve, you know. And so we don't need righteousness. Yes, we pay lip service to it. But we, we don't think about this verse the way we should. Listen to what Calvin preached, not, what he, not his commentary. This is from his sermon to the people of Geneva on this this verse. He says, this passage is rather simple. And at first glance, one would not linger over it very long. The Jews also are so blind and stupid that they don't know what it means. (laughs) There's something we would say today, right? 
And among Christians, listen to this, he says, among Christians, we scarcely find one in a hundred who even appreciates the content of these words. For if these three or four words were well understood that Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It is certain the entire papacy would be abolished. Nobody here had any idea that's what was going to come next. And why? Well, because great reform men today, like Peter Lightheart, tell us it's time to, to heal the division. Because nobody sees the denial of the righteousness that was credited to Abram, imputed to Abram, that is constant across Roman Catholic history. And the minute I say that, everybody's like, oh, oh. Is he done? <laughs> Help! And this is, again, an indication that we don't care about the imputation of righteousness because we don't feel that we're sinners. And if the Roman Catholics get a little bit of righteousness in one way and we get a little bit in another, I mean, just as long as you have a little bit, And yeah, the theologians will argue about it, but I don't really care about that. And I'm not going to think carefully about it because the Bible should feed me like like Pat the Bunny and the Velveteen Rabbit. Pat the Bunny. That's how the Bible should be to me. I shouldn't have to think. And so I say to you, okay, fine. What does it mean that that he had righteousness imputed to him? What does that mean? What's the word impute mean? And what does it mean he believed? And what was he believing anyhow? And what's the righteousness? Is it his? Is it that the belief that he did was righteousness that God accepted is sufficient for his salvation? And when when his faith was imputed to him as righteousness... Did that righteousness just simply balance out the righteousness or the, the sin in him that was puted to him, say, from Adam? So from Adam, we have imputed to us sin, and our righteousness of believing, the righteousness, the goodness of believing, or in a Facebook generation, the righteousness of sincerity. You know, Abram was a sincere man who, when God said something, he was like, yeah. Right? And so, the imputation of Adam's sin, and then the sincerity of Abram, on the scales of justice, balance each other out, and Abram goes scot-free. And we come to this verse, and that's about the level that we hit it. He's from Peter's righteousness. Pat the bunny. Velveteen rabbit, you know. And so Pooh had honey. And they all went home and went to bed.
Calvin says, among Christians, we scarcely find one in a hundred who even appreciates the content of these words. For if these three or four words were well understood that Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, it is certain the entire papacy would be abolished. All of the superstitions in vogue today would cease. All the debates that we have to endure would be put to rest. For this passage holds the key that opens all that is required for our salvation. Is Abram reckoned righteous because his belief in God was a virtue, a good thing he did, and that good thing went as credit to his account before God? So it was a plus one or a plus 100 in his account of righteousness. And you know this is what you were taught from the time you were little. This is what we've all been taught. We've all been taught that Jesus did everything that he possibly could short of that one thing he can't. And that one thing he can't is you have to make a personal decision for Jesus Christ. But it's a complete denial of these three or four words. And yet it's the basis of all the evangelistic crusades of the evangelical world, Protestant. What did Abram do, actually? It says he believed God. Well, what is the meaning of this word believe? Again, Calvin, he says, quote, it means to accept with such reverence, to accept with such reverence what is proposed by God that we are restrained by it and do not doubt it. To accept with such reverence what is proposed by God that we are restrained by it and do not doubt it. But if you think about that, what about James, where it says in 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. It sounds to me like Calvin's just defined the very faith that the demons have. They don't doubt. They not only believe, but they do something that most men today are incapable of, which is to tremble at the thought of a holy God. The demons tremble. There must be something we believe beyond that God is one because the demons believe that God is one. Something we must do beyond trembling at God because the demons believe and tremble. So what did Abram believe? Was it simply that he would have a child natural born from his own loins? Was that it? Was that all the content of his faith? As if it said, Abram believed God would give him a son and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. No, Abram believed God's word that he and Sarai would be given a child. Yes, he did believe this, but much or infinitely more. Abram believed that God was his God. Abram believed he himself was God's son and God was his father. You remember what it says in the New Testament. It says that our hearts cry out, what? Abba, Father! Abram looked to God in faith because Abram trusted God as his heavenly father. And beyond trusting God as his heavenly father, Abram trusted God to cleanse him from his sin and to provide him righteousness. Righteousness. 
There is no other way by which we must be saved. There is no salvation from anything, not from cancer, not from loneliness, not from betrayal. Salvation in Scripture is being washed from our sin. That's what we need to be saved from. That, that, that. And listen, if you're asked by somebody whether you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you answer no, I take you at your word. I take you at your word. You say, well, there's nobody here like that. I say, oh yeah, there is. Absolutely, there are always people in church who will not take Jesus Christ as their Savior. And you, you say, well, why? Why on earth? And I say, well, why on earth would you take Jesus as your Savior if you've never been under the preaching of Scripture and come under the conviction of sin? Why would you take Jesus as your Savior if you did not think you were a sinner? You know, everybody that you live with during the week is completely insensitive to the precarious position that they stand in every second of every day before a holy God. If you were to really talk to somebody about the fact that you cried out, what must I do to be saved? And you were told, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thou in thy house and that you spent the rest of the night feeding and cleaning and, and getting baptized and hearing the word of God proclaimed, you know, nobody in your life would understand you. <laughs> you know, are you crazy? You know, did you grow up under a guilt trip of some sort? You, are you a murderer? What, what, what is it that caused you to be so concerned about your, your sin? It's like a negative cosmic karmic negative trip, dude. You know, you got to get some self-esteem. And there she was in the presence of a good Presbyterian elder or pastor. And he was feeding Jesus at his table. Intimate. It says that they were lying down. And there she is. And all she can think of is the fact that she had sinned much and she had been forgiven much. And so she is making a spectacle of herself. She's crying. And her tears are so many that they wet Jesus' feet. And it doesn't stop. And her hair and the perfume, and it's such an unseemly thing. And Simon is disgusted by it. 
Simon says, if he knew who she was, what kind of woman she was, he would not let her do this. And Jesus says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? We read this, he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And we think it's just about believing that he's going to have a child from his own body, his own loins. And yet in a few chapters later, we read that when Abram's commanded by God to sacrifice his son, it says in 22.6, Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and had laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abram, his father, and said, My father, and he, Abram, said, Here I am, my son. And he, Isaac, his son, said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abram said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And we read that, and we just think, well, you know, I know what that means. I know that's a prophecy about the coming Messiah, but Abram couldn't have understood that he was prophesying about the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Abram couldn't have known that he was speaking of Jesus Christ because he was going to sacrifice his son. He was on the way to sacrifice his son. And so he was just sort of lying to his son at that moment because what he should have said to Isaac is, Isaac, you're the Lamb. And so we deny that Jesus is in the faith of Abram when it says that he believed God and it was reckoned to him. As, and then when he says God will provide the lamb and we go all through the Old Testament and we just are absolutely smart and we just think none of those people needed to be forgiven for sins. Those people were righteous. They weren't carrying around in their body death. They weren't looking to God to be cleansed of their sin. They didn't have guilt trips. It was all land, and it was like circumcision, and it was like people and descendants, and those people were disgusting. They lived so organically, laughing in tents. Since when has there ever been forgiveness of sins without Jesus Christ? There is no forgiveness of sins without Jesus Christ. How can Abram have any righteousness placed in his account unless it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ? You think God was saying, well, there's a little spark of belief. I think that's sufficient to go ahead and, and count it towards Abram's account. Now, we still have, you know, we still have a whole lot over here, but we've got a little bit of belief about having a son here, and this is the way we read Scripture. We read it as if the Holy Spirit didn't write it. 
We read it as if God didn't know when he spoke through Moses what God spoke through John the Baptist when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus who said, As the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that he will draw all men to himself. And so we have to read this account of Abram having his faith imputed to him as righteousness as a statement of Abram's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. It's faith in his heavenly Father's provision for the forgiveness of his sins. There is none other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So what, we think Abram comes separate from Jesus? Abram had faith in Jesus Christ. You say, well, that's impossible. I say, with God, all things are possible. Who do you think Abram was looking to by faith? Was it Sarai? It was God, his father. And what was he looking to God for? The same thing you look to God for. For forgiveness of sins. For righteousness. Because you know you cannot stand before a holy God. You know that. Because the law is your schoolmaster, and it's brought you to the end of yourself. Okay? It's so difficult for us to read accounts like this through the New Testament because we think, well, it can't have to do with Jesus. But you know something? The real reason that we say that it can't have to do with Jesus is not because we have this principle of interpreting texts. You know, that's what we'd like to think, you know. Well, I think we should take the text in its original I make a joke with our pastors. I, I always say, sits, zits, zits, zitzemleben. All right. Which is, a, it's how you speak if you, if you have a master's of divinity degree. I was talking to this guy that was getting a doctorate about his vocabulary this last week, and he said, well, I have to use a vocabulary like that because that's what the professors need. So we look at a text, we say, well, we have to interpret it in its original Uh, situation in life, okay? And we have to have integrity with that original situation in life, and Abraham hadn't met Jesus Christ. He didn't know about the cross. And we come up with all these reasons why, why Abram didn't have faith in Jesus Christ, and why? Well, the reason is that we don't want to be humble, and we don't want to take our sins before God, because as we see it, our sins aren't as bad as other people's sins, and it's all about protecting our pride. Do you understand? And so we deny that Abram had faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore we refuse to have faith in Jesus Christ, and then we hit the real pay dirt. And the real pay dirt is, since we refuse to have him as Savior, we don't need to have him as Lord. Do you understand? The whole thing is a scheme to keep us from having to obey 
Jesus as our master. And so we fool ourselves about our condition spiritually. We fool ourselves about our sin. And then we say that Abram wasn't talking about Jesus, but Abram was having faith in the promise. And the promise was simply a child. And we just cut scripture up like this, 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 even though the Holy Spirit has written Jesus everywhere in scripture. And why does Jesus anger us so much? And you say, oh no, Jesus doesn't anger me at all. I say, liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. You hate Jesus. And you say, oh no, I'm a Christian, I have faith in Jesus. And I say, yes, but be honest with me, your natural man does not come to Jesus. And you say, oh, but I'm done with a natural man. I've been born again by the Spirit of God. And I say, but would you remember how much you hated Jesus? Why did you hate Jesus? The reason you hated Jesus is that you didn't want to confess your sins. You don't want to confess them now to your wife. Come on. Be honest with me. What are all the fights in the home about? Every fight at home is that either the husband or the wife, or more likely both of them, don't want to confess their sin to each other. And then you're going to tell me you'll confess it to God? What are the fights in junior high and high school about? Oh, it has nothing to do with sin, does it? Listen, the minute Abram believed God, the minute he believed God, he got up and he left. There is no way to have faith without obeying God. And the only way we can come to God in faith is by confessing our sins. We have to come empty. It's the only way to come. And so, do you have deceit in your heart? Deceit. Real deceit. Do you have jealousy? Do you have adultery in your heart? Do you have fornication in your heart? You say, oh, no, no, I don't do any of the dirty sins. <laughs> you know, I don't fornicate, I don't commit adultery, haven't murdered my unborn child. So you think you're pretty good, right? You remember what the Apostle Paul says? You remember what he says? He says, I, I would not have known what sin is, unless what? Any of you remember? Unless the law had said to me what? Come on, say it. Thou shalt not covet. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He thinks he's perfect as, according to the law, perfect. And then he runs into 
thou shalt not covet. And he realizes it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Because if you have offended God in the smallest part of the law, you are guilty of it all. Do you covet? Do you covet? You don't want to be guilty of the nasty ones. Okay, fine. Do you covet? And if so, there is no hope for you. You're guilty of all the law. And so what righteousness will you, will you take with you? What righteousness will be clothed in when you face God? How are you going to face God? You are a sinner. And you have spent your life refusing to sit under preaching, refusing to read it, refusing to be convicted by it. You have spent your life cataloging everybody else's sins, everybody else's failures, and you will not allow the word of God to convict you. And yet the word of God says, thou shalt not covet. And what this means is that God's standard is so far beyond you. You are so depraved according to the holiness of God that there is no possible righteousness that you can bring to God. You must have the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what is imputation? Imputation is where you have transferred to your account something that has nothing to do with you. And that's the righteousness of Christ. It gets applied to your account. And listen, if you're an honest person, an honest man, an honest woman, and you're willing to confess your sin, willing to confess your sin, and to put it before God, and to say, God, there is no hope for me. That's faith. <laughs> that is faith. And God promises to give you the righteousness of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And so, is Abram your father? Do you believe in God, in his son Jesus Christ? I'm going to end by doing something very weird, okay? <laughs> and I know you'll be impatient, but when I get to the end of this, I have one scripture to read and I'm done. So fasten your safety belts, okay? Listen to this. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies. 
not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself. In other words, faith isn't the thing that saved Abram. The act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing what? The obedience and satisfaction of Christ. To them. And they receiving and resting on him in his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ in his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Instrument. Yet it's not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are thus justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction of his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. God did from all eternity decree to justify the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ unto them. God does continue, now this is my personal right now happy point in this reading. Listen to this. God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Satan just always is telling me that my sin now can't. My sin, you know, every sin I sin is the unpardonable sin. Are you with me? Well, yeah, but I'm returning to my vomit, you know? There's no hope for me. Augustine's mother should have kept my mother from having me baptized, you know? Baptism just did it up until then, but now I'm on my own. I've got to be good or I won't be in heaven. But it says, no, God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure, and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. Now, I just read to you the entire chapter from the Westminster Confession on Justification. (laughs) 
Isn't it helpful? And this is what is meant when we read here. In the book of Genesis, written by Moses, then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Let us pray. Our Father, we know that no man can understand his sin. let alone bring it to Jesus and plead for mercy without the work of your spirit in him. And because you have said that your father delights to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. We pray for those souls here this morning who are not broken before your holiness. Who do not understand their sin. And who have never believed in you that you will send them your spirit, that they will ask you to send them your spirit. And that you will give them new life, that they will be born again. Father, Impute to them the righteousness of Jesus Christ and make them to despair of all other righteousness, especially their own. And we ask this knowing that it pleases you to grant this request because it is the teaching of your word. Praying in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.